This is The Tea on International Arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaila Gering Flores. I am an international arbitration partner at Allen & Overy, and Nicole is an attorney and investment manager with third-party funder Validity Finance. Both of us serve as committee chairs of the DC international law community. Today, we are going to discuss enforcement, which is such a broad and diverse and robust topic perhaps polemic topic, that we have invited onto the show not one, but three amazing guests. They are Lindsay Schmidt of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in New York, Shaparak Saleh of Three Crowns in Paris, and Adrián Magallanes of Von Wilbeser in Mexico City. So, Nicole, want to do the honor of introducing our guests? I do. So, first up, we have Shaparak who is a partner in Three Crowns Paris office. She has acted as counsel in a large number of commercial arbitrations, both ad hoc and institutional. Her experience includes post-M&A disputes and disputes relating to projects in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe, in the construction, energy, aeronautics, space, telecommunications, food, chemicals, and pharmaceutical sectors. She also regularly sits as an arbitrator, including as chairperson. In addition, Schaap has broad experience in pre- and post-arbitration litigation, including set-aside and enforcement proceedings before the French courts, having represented clients in some 25 set-aside proceedings. Second, we have Lindsay Schmidt, a partner in the New York office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in the firm's International Arbitration Group which recently won International Arbitration Group of the Year from Law 360. She's also part of the team recognized for its outstanding work on EPEC versus Turkey Interim Measures Award. And Lindsay has extensive experience in all areas of both international commercial arbitration and investor arbitrations, but particularly in disputes relating to mining, energy, telecommunications, global logistics, aviation, and financial services. Lindsay also has significant experience in complex litigation and advises clients on pursuing complex and creative multi-jurisdictional enforcement strategies of arbitral awards. And last but not least, we have Adrian Magallanes, who is a partner and co-head of the arbitration and litigation practices of the Von Wilberser firm in Mexico City, and he also co-leads its energy and natural resources industry group. He is also part of the ESG practice group, which, in case you've been living under a rock, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. With close to 20 years of experience, he has represented clients in commercial energy infrastructure and investor state arbitrations, and is experienced in advocating under a variety of domestic and international arbitration rules. He also appears as an arbitrator in commercial construction and energy disputes, and he has acted as a Mexican law expert before U.S. courts. Okay, we have a ton to cover today, so let's get right to it. But just one note before we get right to it, we clearly have provided you with experts in three different jurisdictions. The world of enforcement involves all of the world. So this is just a slice of enforcement in the world, and we welcome all three of you here today. Thank you for being here. The first question is the same for each of you, and that is, can you please briefly, if possible, explain how arbitral awards are recognized and enforced in your jurisdiction, and in so doing, 
Can you please also address under what circumstances they are not recognized or enforced? And Adrian, let's start with you. Can you tell us about Mexico? Absolutely, Ayla and Ayla Nicole, thank you very much for the invitation. Lindsay, Shab, a pleasure to be here with you today. So I, I think a, a way to, to structure the answer would be to divide the substantive part of enforcement and annulment from the procedural part. Substantively speaking, Mexico is a party to the New York Convention and also incorporated the Unicentral uh, Model Arbitration Law. So the grounds for annulment and enforcement are very standard. There are no surprises here in this jurisdiction. And they are being interpreted strictly by Mexican courts. There is established case law that the judicial review of an award should not enter into the revision of the merits or the reasoning of the tribunal. Now, procedurally speaking, here's a little bit more complex. The procedure is regulated by the Commerce Code. We have a special bench trial specifically regulating annulment and enforcement of commercial arbitral awards. There's three judicial instances, two levels of review. So you would have the bench trial initially that can be revised through an amparo action, which is a constitutional challenge. And that decision can be subject to an amparo revision. So you would have three different instances that you need to go through to ultimately obtain a res judicata judgment, recognizing and enforcing an award. Now, Mexico is a federal state. We have 32 federal entities uh, within the state, and there's local and federal courts. Claimants have a constitutional right to file at whatever venue they choose. So a claimant may choose to file before a federal court or a local court. That's completely dependent on claimants. The situation gets a little bit tricky when a claimant seeking for enforcement files before a federal court and a claimant seeking for annulment files before a local court. So what happens here? And I think I'm going straight into criticizing the arbitration system in Mexico because the Commerce Code prohibits the consolidation of these proceedings. So there's a risk of contradictory awards. What's the solution here? Well, of course, an amendment to the law, but that will happen with a lot of difficulty. So practically speaking, if you are seeking the enforcement of an award, the best advice you can get is to wait for the three months of the statute of limitations to run so that you know where you're being sued, either in federal courts or local courts. And once you receive that summons, just file a counterclaim in that same court. By doing this, you'll save a lot of headaches to your client and to you. So that's a short tip of the Mexican practice. Thank you, Adrian. And Shaf, can you please next tell us about France? Brian, thank you very much for having me today alongside uh, well-esteemed colleagues. So I will address a question from a French law perspective. But before I do that, I'd like to make two important preliminary remarks. First one is that I think it's important to recall that the winning party in arbitration proceedings won't necessarily need to bring formal enforcement proceedings. And in fact, in most cases, the losing party will comply with the award uh, voluntarily or with a little bit of pressure, which can take different forms. It can be commercial pressure, diplomatic pressure, 
reputational pressure, uh, name it. In other instances, the parties will negotiate. And for example, uh, you know, you will often see the, that the winning party in the arbitration will accept a reduced payment uh, in consideration for new contracts or simply to reflect costs it will save by not having to pursue formal enforcement proceedings. And so uh, that was my first preliminary remark. My second preliminary remark, which can sound a bit, you know, um, common, but I think it's important to make that point, is that the winning party will seek enforcement in France when the losing party has assets against which the award can be enforced in France, because otherwise that would be completely, you know, useless. I'm now done with my two preliminary remarks, and I'll address your questions, which are how are arbitral awards recognized and enforced in France, and under what circumstances they're not. And basically answering your question implies addressing four uh, sub-questions. And the first one is, who is the competence to judge? And the answer to that question is, it depends. The answer is to be found in the French Code of Civil Procedure, but the code draws a distinction between awards that are rendered in France and awards that are rendered abroad. If the award uh, was issued by an arbitral tribunal which is seated in France, leave to enforce must be sought from the tribunal judiciaire, so it's a first instance court, of the place where the award was made. So for instance, if the tribunal was seated in Toulouse, leave must be sought before the tribunal judiciaire of Toulouse. If the award was made abroad, in that case, leave to enforce must be sought before the Tribunal Judiciaire of Paris. So for all the arbitral awards that will have been issued abroad, Paris will have jurisdiction to decide on whether or not exequature or leave to enforce ought to be granted. The second sub-question I must address is what's the procedure for obtaining leave to enforce? The first and important thing to notice is that French courts do not charge a fee to decide on an application for leave to enforce, so that will be done for free. The application for leave to enforce is made ex parte, which means that uh, leave to enforce is granted or denied without any adversarial debate at that stage. And the party who seeks an awards recognition or enforcement must only find originals or certified copies of the arbitral award and of the arbitration agreement. And if these documents are in a foreign language, they must be translated into French by a certified translator. But you don't need to file any kind of submissions in support of your application. No hearing, no submissions, nothing. And leave to enforce is typically granted within three weeks. Another important element to note is that in a very recent decision of January 2023, the French Supreme Court ruled that there's no time limit for seeking leave to enforce an award in France. So you can take as long as you want when the award is uh, rendered abroad. And it's also important to emphasize that as a matter of principle in France, arbitral awards are enforceable immediately once exequature is granted even if a challenge against the executive order or against the award is pending. I move on to my third sub-question, which is, when is enforcement granted or denied? And to answer that question, one must turn to Article 1514 of the French Code of Civil Procedure, which provides that for executive to be granted, 
The party relying on the award must prove its existence. That's quite easy to do. And that the recognition or enforcement of the award must not be manifestly contrary to the French conception of international public policy. Two observations in this respect. First, the use of the term manifestly means that refusal to grant leave to enforce are extremely rare. And second, according to French case law, the concept of international public policy is defined as, I quote, the set of rules and values that the French legal system cannot ignore, even in international matters. It's impossible to provide an extensive list of what you know, uh, those set of rules and values are. They include fundamental principles of procedure, as well as substantive issues such as corruption, bribery, certain bankruptcy rules, as well as certain EU competition law provisions. Now, to finally address your question, I need to address a final uh, sub-question, which is what are the grounds on which an executive order may be repealed? And in that respect, a challenge. So as I said to you, it's a non-adversarial debate, but you can then challenge the decision which is obtained, and you can do so on five limited grounds only, which are the following. One, if the tribunal wrongly upheld or declined jurisdiction. Two, if the tribunal was irregularly constituted. Three, if the tribunal ruled without complying with the mandate which was conferred on it. Four, if due process was violated. Or five, if recognition or enforcement of the award would violate international public policy. Thanks, Chef. I just have some follow-up. It sounds like those five grounds in the end for denying enforcement sound very much like the New York Convention. And France is certainly a member of the New York Convention. But kind of balancing what you also have said about how awards are very immediately enforceable in France, and it sounds like France has put forth some other standards that maybe make enforcement a little bit easier. Is that true? Is it true that the New York Convention standards might be considered mm, perhaps less relevant in France or more, you know, maybe more stringent for enforcement? And if so, what does that actually mean in practice? So are, are there unique advantages or challenges for claimants who would like to enforce their arbitral awards in France? Yes, you're right, Gaëlle. Uh, the New York Convention is less relevant in France than elsewhere, and France does provide a unique advantages for award winners uh, who wish to enforce their arbitral awards. As you said, France is a member of the New York Convention. Under this convention, obviously, France has agreed to enforce arbitration awards from other New York Convention signatories. It has agreed to refrain from ap applying more onerous conditions than those that are imposed uh, on the recognition or enforcement of uh, domestic arbitral awards. However, in practice, the enforcement provisions of the New York Convention are rarely applied in France, and that's because Article 7.1 of the New York Convention, also known as the more favorable right provision, applies. And in accordance with this provision, the French uh, regime on recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards applies given that it's more liberal than the New York Convention itself. I will cite one example which sets France apart from most other jurisdictions in the world. 
And France's pro-enforcement approach in this respect, uh, I think, can be described as almost unique. That example is based on Article 5E of the New York Convention, which, uh, as you know, provides that recognition and enforcement of the award may be refused if the award has been set aside at the seat of the arbitration. And this is what virtually all jurisdictions decide to do, except for France. In France, an arbitral award annulled at the seat of arbitration can still be enforced. And in this regard, uh, the French Supreme Court has rendered two landmark decisions. One is called Hill-Martin. It's uh, now almost 30 years old. It was rendered in 1994. And the other decision is Putra Bali, and it was rendered in 2007. And the reasoning that is adopted by the French Supreme Court in those decisions uh, to justify the recognition and enforcement in France of awards that are set aside at the seat is that an international arbitral award is not anchored to the seat of arbitration. Hence, despite its annulment at the seat, it can continue to circulate in France and be enforced there. We will be returning to this concept of enforcing an award that's been annulled at its seat in a little bit. Yeah, I was just going to say that too. Lindsay, we haven't gotten to you yet, but I understand that the U.S. has some quirks of its own. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the enforcement system in our country. Yeah, happy to, Nicole. And thanks very much for having me on today. So in your question, you're absolutely right. There's, there's essentially two stages to consider in the U.S. First, there's recognition of the award. And second, there's enforcement. Oftentimes they're conflated together, but they actually are in fact separate processes and they're treated separately in the United States. So for the first stage, when you're talking about recognition, the procedure is relatively straightforward as we've heard today because the procedure is found in the New York Convention, which is then codified into the Federal Arbitration Act here in the US. Essentially, the prevailing party just has to file a petition for recognition and confirmation. It comes along with a memorandum of law, some exhibits, right? And you have to bring it before the appropriate U.S. court. Once the judge enters an order recognizing the award, then certain documents have to be lodged with the court, including the, you know, the arbitration agreement, the award, and the like, pretty limited. And then if a party opposes entry of the arbitral award against it, it either has to initiate an action to set aside the award or has to respond to the petition. And as Adrian said earlier today, there's very limited grounds upon which an award can be set aside. Essentially, the award was rendered by fraud, the arbitrators were corrupt or acting beyond their powers or fundamental due process rights have been ignored. So very, very limited circumstances. Now, the process to enforce in the U.S., so that second stage, is a different matter, and it's different from what we've discussed today. And that's because the U.S. Supreme Court has recently held that an action to enforce an arbitral award is essentially just a contractual interpretation case that belongs in state court, and we obviously have 50 states. So consequently, when most actions to enforce or vacate arbitration awards they, for the most part, now have to be brought in state courts, absent from diversity and citizenship. So what does this mean? It means that once you get past the recognition stage, the enforcement procedures can vary from state to state. So as a winning party, you know, so you'll have to think really, really carefully about which state you want to bring an enforcement action in. 
a lot of prevailing parties will want to enforce in New York. There's a well-developed body of law there. The courts and judges are known to be quite sophisticated and quite frankly, it's just often where the money is, right? Or where the money is going through corresponding bank accounts. But in New York, you typically need some sort of jurisdictional hook to bring your enforcement action, right? So either some sort of personal jurisdiction over the debtor or over the asset in REM jurisdiction or specific connections to the state. And those same jurisdictional requirements are not present in every single state. Some are more stringent than others, right? And also the scope of discovery that you're permitted, the scope of asset discovery changes from state to state, as do the mechanisms available to enforce against a judgment of debtor's assets. So the point really is in making your assessment of where to file your enforcement action in the US, you need to consider the most favorable place for you based on your set of facts and circumstances. And of course, on the debtor side, on the, on the, the losing party side, you really need to be aware of where you're most vulnerable, right? Where it will be most difficult for you to oppose enforcement. And the last thing I'd say is you really need to consider this question, not just in light of where in the US you want to file, but where else in the world you may be seeking to enforce, right? Potentially in parallel at the same time. And in my experience, enforcing some of these massive multi-billion dollar awards, it's very rare that you would only be enforcing in the U.S. Usually we're bringing parallel proceedings where we also think assets are maybe in London, maybe in France, maybe in Dubai or wherever, right? So you need to consider all of this as part of a cohesive global strategy. And then we sort of, to put it colloquially, quarterback that strategy. So there's a lot to think about in the U.S., and it's usually not divorced from a broader enforcement strategy. Thank you. Sounds like you need to have a very good quarterback to help bring <laughs> some of these actions. Exactly. All right. Well, moving from the U.S. to Mexico, I understand that Mexico has historically, more or less, been known as a country with a judiciary that is supportive of arbitral award enforcement. Putting aside for the moment, the Camisa v. Pemex decisions from about seven to eight years ago, and we're gonna to get to that later as we've already previewed. What, Adrian, is the current climate environment like now in Mexico, almost five years into the AMLO administration regarding enforcement of arbitral awards? Thank you, Nicole. I, I would like to address this in two sections. First, the investment climate and the role of the judiciary in this climate. And secondly, the enforcement of arbitral awards. Now, with respect to the investment climate, the situation here in Mexico is a bit schizophrenic. On the one hand, we have domestic and foreign investors that have raised very serious concerns regarding many regulations issued by the federal executive branch and even some laws issued by federal Congress, most notably in the energy industry. Most of you have heard of these measures, and many have speculated about how Mexico could become the next Argentina or Spain in the ISDS world. On the other hand, despite all these political signals and all these concerns, Mexico is receiving foreign investment and is open to foreign investment. And foreign investments have been made by not only investors from the U.S., but from all over. Why is this happening? Well, Mexico is benefiting by the trends of uh, nearshoring or friendly shoring or however you want to call it. And a lot of investment is entering the country. Now, uh, this be as it may, one can always speculate on whether we would be receiving 
far more investment in the country if it were not for the different measures adopted by the federal government. And I do not say this lightly. Uh, just in the past couple of months, several legislative initiatives have been filed before Congress by the executive branch, and some of them are very relevant to investors. For example, there was a legislative reform in the mining industry was just approved by Congress. And this mining industry reform affects the right of investors. And I expect that a new wave of amparos will be filed before the federal courts. Just a month ago, a new legislative reform was filed by the executive branch, modifying 23 statutes that govern the relationship between companies and the government, concessions, public interests, right to indemnifications. So there's a lot of movement, and the investment climate is being affected by all these measures. On the other hand, we have the judiciary working in parallel with the executive branch and Congress. What has been the conduct of the judiciary of, of during the past years? Well, I have to affirm very candidly and very happily that there's strong evidence to demonstrate that the Mexican judiciary is independent. There are some individual judges that have become very notable. And personally, I consider them as heroes because they have tolerated a lot of pressure. They have stopped through injunctions and amparo rulings, different initiatives that changed or that would have changed Mexico as a country. And the same can be said about the majority of the ministry of the justices of the Supreme Court. So we do have an independent judiciary. Now, let's hope that that remains over the next years. It's very important. Now, with respect to the enforcement of arbitral awards, here, again, the situation is complex. Some years ago, you, you might remember the president accusing those law practitioners that defended foreign investors before arbitral tribunals of being traitors to the country. So that, that's a very, let's say, particular situation to be in if you're living in Mexico and practicing Mexican law and in the field of arbitration. But on the other hand, the judiciary has remained very friendly towards the enforcement and annulment of arbitral awards, which again shows that we have an independent judiciary. Specifically speaking, awards are being recognized and enforced even against federal agencies and state-owned companies. I personally am, am litigating a large case against the Federal Electricity Commission, and the award has been recognized, and the annulment petition was refused. Uh, of course, I agree with that decision, but of, this only shows, again, that we have uh, an independent judiciary. So with respect to the investment climate and enforcement of arbitral awards, I can say that investors in the country and companies doing business all over the Mexican territory should feel safe that if they agree to an arbitration clause, this arbitration clause will be respected, that the arbitrators are experienced, that the Mexican courts are friendly towards arbitration, and that awards are being recognized and enforced. There is a publication made by Clue uh, Arbitration indicating that the probability of an award being enforced was 71% in average in national courts all over the world. And that on average, jurisdictions, uh, courts in, in different jurisdictions vacated commercial awards at a rate of 
23%. We do not have statistics in Mexico, but based on the practice in this firm and on the practice we are seeing in other firms, I'm pretty sure that the average that we have is considerably better than this. So again, Mexico is a friendly jurisdiction towards arbitration. Do not hesitate to indicate Mexico City as the seat of your arbitration. Uh, the courts are friendly towards it. Thank you, Adrian. That's great to know. I know that definitely a, a number of, of investors have become a bit skittish about Mexico lately, but but there are plenty of investors who haven't. Certainly, you know, big example is Tesla going into Mexico recently. So it's it's good to hear that the judiciary is is hanging on. <laughs> Things are at least with respect to attitudes toward international arbitration award enforcement that is still continuing on in Mexico. So let's switch gears a bit and discuss everyone's favorite topic. Acmea and Comstroy and, and their progeny. And this special treat goes to Shap. And I would like to ask, what effect will Acmea, Comstroy, and all of those decisions have on the enforcement of arbitral awards in France? So I'm first going to say a few words about what the famous Acmea decision is to give a bit of context, but yeah. As you may all know, uh, the ACMEA decision was issued in March 2018 in the framework of annulment proceedings which were brought by Slovakia against an award that was rendered in favor of a Dutch investor. And in that context, the German Federal Supreme Court referred a question to the ECJ. And it asked whether certain provisions of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union precluded the application of the arbitration agreement contained in the BITs at hand. And the ECJ uh, decided that international arbitral tribunals do not qualify as domestic courts of the member states and therefore are unable to request preliminary rulings from the European court when they must interpret or apply EU law. And because of that, uh, the ECJ considered that arbitration clauses contained in intra-EU BITs are incompatible with EU law. And so the ECJ then went on to say that arbitral tribunals would endanger the uniformity and consistency of EU law because they're not allowed to uh, refer questions to the ECJ. And in the immediate aftermath of the ECMIR ruling, uh, several questions were raised and you know, practitioners were asking themselves what would be the impact of the decision on the other 200 BITs, which were at the time enforced between the EU member states, would European investors be able to rely on the arbitration clauses that these BITs contained? Would uh, the same rule apply and the same reasoning apply to the Energy Charter Treaty, the ECT? And basically, we were soon able to answer these questions because within three years of the ACMEA decision, things became clearer and not necessarily in a very positive way. First, because in May 2020, most EU member states, with a few exceptions, signed an agreement to terminate all the BITs concluded between EU member states. And that uh, termination agreement also abrogated the sunset clauses that were included in most intra-EU BITs. 
And then a second in September 2021, uh, all hopes were gone with the ECJ issuing the Comstory decision in which it ruled that intra-EU arbitration under the ECT is also incompatible with EU law. And interestingly, the Paris Court of Appeal was the first national court which decided to annul arbitral awards in the aftermath of the ACNIA decision. And so in two decisions that were issued on the 19th of April, 2022, the Paris Court of Appeal set aside two intra-EU BIT awards against Poland on the grounds that the arbitral tribunals had wrongly upheld jurisdiction in light of the ECJ's ruling in ACNIA. And the question is, what effect will those decisions have on the enforcement of arbitral awards in France? So as I explained to you earlier, enforcement can only be denied if the award manifestly violates international public policy. The two French court decisions I just mentioned relate to set-aside proceedings, not enforcement proceedings. And they annulled the arbitral awards on the ground that the tribunal wrongly upheld jurisdiction, not on the ground that they violated international public policy. Could the tribunal judiciaire uh, refuse recognition and enforcement under the French Code of Civil Procedure on the ground that the award is an intra-EU BIT award? The answer, I believe, is potentially yes if it considers that intra-EU BIT awards manifestly violate French international public policy. And unfortunately, in any event, should this not be the case, and should leave to enforce be granted, the exequatur order would ultimately be repealed, or the award would ultimately be set aside on the ground that the arbitral tribunal wrongly upheld jurisdiction. So the answer to your question is yes. The ACMIA decision and its progeny do have an impact on the enforcement of arbitral awards in France and I believe in the rest of Europe. Yeah, thank you, Shat, for that answer. It's, it's a disappointing one, but it makes a lot of sense. We're going to shift topics just a little bit, and maybe, Lindsay, your answer will help a little bit to explain this 23% statistic that you've given us, Adrian. But Lindsay, when we talk about enforcement of arbitral awards and the process and their steps to recognize and enforce an award in the U.S. and actually elsewhere, in what ways do governments or even particular administrations matter? In theory, the steps to recognize and enforce arbitral awards should be the same, no matter the administration that is in power from either the debtor or the creditor countries. But is that how you actually see it in practice? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, in theory, the processes to recognize and enforce arbitral awards would be predictable and consistent, no matter the government or specific administration in power, right? That's what it means to sort of to have a rule of law, is to have it be predictable. Now, in practice, what I'll say is that in my experience, governments matter, administrations matter, and of course, current politics matter. And that's what is exciting about our job, right? We're bringing sovereigns into our litigation and our enforcement proceedings. And what that means for those proceedings is that few things remain stagnant, right? So you have to always keep an eye on not just the dispute itself, but what's happening in the broader political landscape. And I can give you an example of this. And 
This is all very public. I can reassure our listeners. So my firm represents Crystal X in the enforcement proceedings of a $1.2 billion award against Venezuela. And we argued successfully that the award is enforceable not just against Venezuela per se, but also against Padovesa, which is Venezuela's state-owned oil company. And that's because Padovesa and Venezuela, we argued, were alter egos of one another, right? So enforcing against Padovesa is essentially the same as enforcing against Venezuela. Now, why did we do that? Padovesa's biggest asset in the U.S. is Citgo. So if you can go after Padavesa, you can enforce against Padavesa's assets in the U.S., which is Citgo, worth, worth billions and billions of dollars. Now, our enforcement efforts were subject, as I was discussing, to the broader political landscape of what's happening. And what that means is that since 2020, the U.S. Treasury blocked all transactions involving Venezuela's U.S. assets due to sanctions against Venezuela. So that necessarily impeded what is supposed to be a predictable process, right? That necessarily impeded Crystal X's ability to enforce against Venezuela by selling Citgo. But, and that was the prior administration, just last Friday, the U.S. Treasury announced that it will not take any enforcement action to halt the auction of Citgo or a negotiated settlement. So you have a change in position from one administration to the next that directly affected enforcement proceedings in the U.S. And I think you'll see similar issues with respect to sanctions against Russia and elsewhere. So all this to say, while there is predictability and there should be consistency when administrations change, things change, and, and the political context in which you are operating is important. Thanks, Lindsay. And of course, we can't deny the influence that each administration will have on the judiciary, the, you know, the actual bodies who are meeting out these enforcement orders or not. And each political party or political administration might have very different views or approaches to international arbitration. Some might be rather hostile and some might be rather inviting. And I guess along those lines, let's go back to this topic we keep hinting at. And I'm going to focus on Adrian here. As we hover over this topic of different jurisdictions and different administrations and political parties' approaches to enforcement, I wanted to talk a bit to you about the battle royale that was Comisa versus Pemex. And very briefly, in broad brushstrokes, and please correct me if I do any violence to the narrative, the way I understand it, Comisa obtained an arbitration award against the Mexican state-owned entity Pemex. Comisa sought confirmation of that arbitral award in the U.S. courts, which the U.S. courts did. Pemex then challenged the confirmation in both U.S. and Mexican courts. Mexico said that it was not enforceable because Pemex was a state-owned entity, and Mexico set that award aside. Now, at this point, it's important to note that the seat of that arbitration was Mexico City, and the governing law was Mexican law. So, you know, kind of 
hearkening back to what Chap was talking about, you know, France doesn't really care where an arbitration is seated. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the U.S. thinks about where an arbitration seat is. So in any event, we have this arbitration award set aside by Mexican courts. It's seated in Mexico, governed by Mexican law. So one might expect Mexican courts to be able to have the last word on that award. No, because the U.S. courts then say, hold my beer or maybe hold my champagne, you know, referring to the Hillmartin French, the French Hillmartin decision. And they say that this Mexican seated arbitral award that was set aside by Mexican courts is totally enforceable in the U.S., period. So my question for you, Adrian, what has the general reaction in Mexico been to the U.S. court's decision? And what happens when you combine this U.S. court decision in the Comisa v. Pemex case with the AMLO administration? Sure, Gaila. Thank you for the question. Uh, just a moment ago, I was saying how Mexico was an arbitration-friendly jurisdiction, and we are now talking about the infamous Comisa case. So, of course, not everything is rainbows, unicorns, and waterfalls in the Mexican arbitration practice, particularly in the field of enforcement of both arbitration agreements and arbitration awards. There are still problems, some of them very serious, particularly in local courts. The media has even reported cases where a denial of justice against investors exists. However, federal courts are or tend, and I do not want to make a generalization, of course, there are some local courts in some states that are fantastic, but uh, federal courts are perceived to be more predictable and, remained, uh, and to remain widely friendly towards arbitration. Now, this being said, as you correctly point out, the Comisa case involves an ICC arbitration award annulled in Mexico, but enforced in the U.S., despite the annulment in Mexico. The U.S. court considered that the Mexican courts uh, violated fundamental notions of justice, arguing that a law was applied retroactively. And based on that, the award was enforced and the annulment decision issued by Mexican courts was not recognized in U.S. territory. So this only proves my point that Mexico is a good jurisdiction. If you have an award issued in Mexico, it will nonetheless be enforced, even if it's annulled in Mexico. So that's how great we are. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, this is a case that is very peculiar, very particular. The factual circumstances of this case are, let's say, exceptional. It's a very complex case, and I have to disclose that I worked on it, so I, I will not say much. But what I can say is that it will not be repeated again, because the factual circumstances that occur in parallel to the legislative changes and the way the court interpreted them, that's a formula that it's impossible to replicate. So that being said, and setting jokes aside, I think this case shows the advantages of arbitration over judicial litigation. I'm not biased against judicial litigation. I do litigation and arbitration, both of them. But it's clearly the legal framework to enforce an arbitration award is, let's say, far more friendly than the legal framework to enforce foreign judgment. 
here, the fact that a U.S. court can decide not to recognize a foreign judgment, even if it's from Mexico or from any other country, only speaks how the opportunities to enforce are maximized. And that's a good thing for whoever wants to have a, an arbitration clause that is ultimately effective. Now, this being said, of course, no one wants to be criticized. And the fact that a foreign court is issuing an opinion of the, on the work of another foreign court is, of course, sensitive. Um, yet, well, ultimately, the award or, or the decision made in the U.S. had no effect in Mexican territory. It was valid in the U.S. territory. So again, this is also a very good example of how the international interplay of enforcement and annulment of award is governed. And again, the merits of the New York Convention and even the Panama Convention, which has received criticism. So with that, bringing this to, to AMLO, AMLO has a saying that whenever he's asked a difficult question, he, he answers that no va a caer en provocaciones, he will not accept the provocation. And I will not either. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, of course, a, a sensitive topic. But at the end, ultimately, what I think it's important to highlight, it's the fact that the advantages of international arbitration are clearly shown in this case, when you can recourse to different judicial systems to see your rights being enforced. Thanks, Adrian. And Lindsay, I wanted to see if you have any reaction to Adrian's comments particularly since this does involve this interesting tension between the U.S. judiciary and the Mexican judiciary. You know, I, I for one, find it fascinating that the U.S. courts, which are generally considered very, shall I say, you know, contract is king. <laughs> the, these parties had agreed in an agreement that the seat of their arbitration was going to be Mexico and the governing law was going to be Mexican law. And yet a U.S. court is able to essentially reconsider that. And I'm, you know, clearly, I think all of us are very pro-international arbitration and pro-international arbitration award enforcement. But I was, I, I was a bit surprised by that result and that a U.S. court wouldn't just say, well, you know, you guys picked that seat and that's what the seat said. So sorry. But in any event, Lindsay, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I, I mean, I agree with everything that Adrian said. I guess what I would emphasize to put everyone's minds slightly at ease, if what you're thinking is, what was the U.S. thinking? Who does the U.S. think it is, right? I mean, these are the questions that, that we're getting. I would emphasize that the Second Circuit made exceedingly clear that extraordinary circumstances existed. And I think, as Adrian said, they were exceptional, right? I think that that's, that's kind of universally agreed. The Second Circuit said that this very high hurdle required to satisfy the public policy exception, which is rarely used successfully, was surmounted. And that's because, among other things, you know, Pemex waived jurisdiction, the Second Circuit found retroactive legislation repugnant to the public policy of the U.S., and essentially it was imperative that the case was heard somewhere, right, among other reasons. So all this to say that the Second Circuit confirmed it has a very, very high hurdle to meet, and that extraordinary circumstances existed in this particular case. So 
I think in that sense, the standard has not changed. It's always been the standard in the U.S., and I don't think that we're going to see this as some sort of slippery slope in terms of how the U.S. will be looking at these cases going forward. So I think, you know, just to reemphasize, it really is exceptional here. And we can look at this, I think, as an outlier where there was a very high hurdle to meet. Thanks, Lindsay. Another question for you. Since you've been practicing, have you seen an uptick in enforcement actions? According to the 2008 Queen Mary PwC survey on corporate attitudes and practices in relation to investment arbitration, which I think came out, I don't know, around a decade or so ago, international corporate counsel were in agreement that voluntary payment of awards was pretty standard, that enforcement actions, if they had to be pursued, were generally efficient and completed within a year, and that regardless, the prevailing party was generally able to recoup all or at least three-fourths of their awarded damages. And this is sort of similar to what Shaps kicked us off with. My question is, is it still that way in your experience or have things changed? What's the climate like today vis-a-vis -vis enforcement proceedings? So I agree with what Shop said earlier, and that it's, it's still the case in my experience that the vast amount of awards being rendered are in fact being paid voluntarily. That said, what I have seen is an uptick in enforcement actions generally over the last decade. And I think, you know, some of that is frankly speaking, just that there's more arbitrations being brought. So there's more awards being issued and thus more awards to enforce. That's part of it. But what I am seeing over time, which is not just a matter of more arbitrations or more awards coming out, is that once awards are recognized, so once it gets past that first stage we were talking about earlier, fewer and fewer debtors are just paying the award at that stage. It used to be, okay, fine, the award is recognized, now we have to pay, okay, you're serious. I'm finding that that's not the case at that stage anymore. I think that has changed. So I'm seeing more and more recalcitrant debtors going all the way to the end, really digging their heels in throughout the enforcement proceedings, coming up with more and more creative ways to potentially move money around and invoke other strategies. And as a result, I'm seeing enforcement actions taking much longer, unfortunately. I think that means that they are more expensive. And I don't have to tell this to you, Nicole, given what you do, but we've also then seen an expansion of the litigation finance world, which again now means there's more funding to pursue those arbitrations and enforcement actions that might not otherwise have been able to be pursued. Of course, it's never the case to have a long drawn out enforcement proceeding. And that's why it kind of goes back to what I was saying, you know, in, in answer to one of your first questions is that it's really, really important to set your strategy from the beginning, even before you bring the claim have that enforcement plan. It's far too late to start thinking about what your enforcement plan, once you know, once you have the award in your hand, you have to do it before there's even a claim. And then you have to continue to monitor that enforcement strategy over the course of the arbitration and the enforcement proceedings as they continue to develop. So that's sort of what I'm seeing, unfortunately longer, unfortunately more expensive, and just a little bit more like pulling teeth. Cheery, anyone else have a comment they want to add to this? Well, I, I do think we are seeing more enforcement and annulment actions. And this is in Mexico is also reflected in the creation of jurisprudence. Mexican courts have issued various criterions and precedents. The Supreme Court, in fact, just in December of last year, issued two judicial criterions based on the same case that are highly relevant. One confirming that the Commerce Code, when it stipulates that the grounds for annulment cannot include the revision of the merits. Uh, the court confirmed that. 
and also the court regulated how the right to receive an opportunity to present its case. So these are very important, let's say, principles and rules that the court has interpreted. So to the extent that there's more litigation, there's also more certainty and more predictability. So I believe that even though you will have an increase at some point of litigation, with the precedents being created, you will have in the near future, in the perceivable future, less cases because the rules are more clear now in Mexico. All right. And I'd just say, just kind of continuing Lindsay's comment on how important having an enforcement plan is and having that in hand before you even start an arbitration proceeding, I would say, let's go back to the agreement itself. And let's just a shout out to our transactional colleagues that you've got a lot of amazing experts in international arbitration who would love to advise you on where the seat of your arbitration should be. If you're truly interested in having an arbitration decision enforced. And I know that when people are making a, you know, coming to an agreement on something, they don't like to think about what will happen when they get into a fight. As one of my law school professors would always say, it's important to have the difficult decisions up front all the time. <laughs> so in any event, we unfortunately have run out of time. And with that comes the last question that we like to ask all of our guests, which is, other than what we've been discussing thus far, what is keeping you awake at night these days? And I'll start with you, Shep. So I guess my youngest child or the current situation in Iran are not the answers you expect, uh, given the focus of our podcast. So I'll say that currently what concerns me is the maximalist approach that is adopted by the French courts and the deeper level of scrutiny they adopt when reviewing allegations of uh, violation of international public policy. In a recent Sorelec decision of September 2022, the French Supreme Court had to answer a simple question. What should prevail, international public policy or loyalty? And it chose the former over the latter by deciding that a party may validly raise for the first time before the annulment or the enforcement judge, an argument pertaining to the violation of international public policy. So in other words, international public policy violations, which were neither raised nor discussed before the arbitral tribunal, can be invoked for the very first time at the annulment or the enforcement stage. And similarly, in March 2022, in the Belocon decision, the French Supreme Court ruled that the Court of Appeal had rightly held that the inquiry into whether a violation of international public policy had been committed was, I quote, neither limited to the evidence produced before the arbitral tribunal nor bound by its findings, assessments, and qualifications, which means you can bring in new evidence at the annulment or enforcement stage in support of your allegation that international public policy was violated. And so in light of these recent developments, I think it's legitimate to ask if France hasn't gone too far. But on the other side, if you try to look at the brighter side of things, that maximalist approach, uh, which is adopted in France, means that 
The deeper level of scrutiny that French courts perform on arbitral awards strengthens Paris's position as a so-called clean and therefore reputable seat. Thanks, Shab. Adrian, how about you? What's keeping you up? What comes to mind is the USMCA negotiations involving the energy sector in Mexico. The negotiations have existed for almost 10 months or around that time, and the Mexican Supreme Court has now assumed jurisdiction over the constitutionality of the amendment to the Mexican energy statute. So we must keep a very close eye on what the court does. I am confident that they will rule in accordance with their convictions. And uh, in my opinion, that law is unconstitutional. So if the court rules that this law is unconstitutional, a very substantive part of the problem would be resolved without the need to an agreement between Mexico and the U.S. But nonetheless, there's still other things that are subject to these consultations under the USMCA. And um, I'm crossing my fingers for these to be resolved amicably, because if this occurs, the investment climate in Mexico will improve. Thanks, Adrian. And Lindsay? Yeah, so for me, it's actually rarely the, the big picture concepts or trends that we've been talking about today that keep me up at night. But as we've been talking about earlier, every single enforcement action is really bespoke, right? Every case is different from the location of the assets to the government involved, the type of assets, where those assets can be moved, jurisdictional considerations, it's all different, right? And one strategy for one client might be, okay, we'll bring multiple enforcement proceedings at the same time. Another strategy might be to get an award converted somewhere first to a judgment in one location and then use that to enforce worldwide. One strategy might be to bring an action where there's broad discovery because you really don't know exactly where all of the assets are, right? So it, it all depends on the circumstances of your particular case. And so I would say what keeps me up at night is how I make all of that work for my client in that particular circumstance so that at the end of the day, you know, your client is not left holding a piece of paper that says they're entitled to a billion dollars, <laughs> that you can actually monetize that, right? So it, it's, it's more, I guess, the specifics for me that keep me up at night. Well, I think we've all learned that recognition and enforcement is probably some of the most creative aspects of international arbitration. And we're so lucky to have you all on the show today to help us understand it a little bit better from a global perspective. So thank you to our special guests and thank you to the DC Bar. To check out more of what the DC Bar communities have to offer, please visit dcbar.org backslash communities. You have been listening to The Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes. And if you like this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe at anchor.fm slash dcbartea or anywhere you access your podcast. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>